0: Inside the Adventure, episode number 30 with Craig Cooper. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its
1: limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosier. And today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Craig Cooper, a serial entrepreneur, venture capitalist, author, and currently the host of CNBC's new Shark Tank style TV show, The Adventure Capitalists, which I highly recommend checking out for all you outdoor enthusiasts listening today. You'll learn more about why in just a second. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the show with us today, Craig. I really appreciate it. How's everything going with you?
2: Hey, Marshall. All is great here in uh, rainy California.
1: That's great. I know they don't usually get rain too often. Is that weird? Right.
2: Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, right, it's, it's it's great because we've now got a lot of snow, which means we've got a lot of water, which means... Um, you know, we can start making our lawns look green again.
1: That's perfect. Yeah, I know the drought's been pretty bad. Rain out there is kind of like snow here in Atlanta. Everyone freaks out, but it's always that's right. nice to have.
2: <laughs> well, Stay off the roads.
1: Exactly. Yeah, if we get a, an inch here, everyone is paralyzed and can't move. But uh, that's great that things are going well. Uh, but really quickly, before diving into Craig's story for everyone listening today, I've got to brag about all the amazing things he's done to truly set the stage for how remarkable Craig's story is. Um So to tell you a little bit more for everyone listening today, Craig Cooper, a 53-year-old serial entrepreneur from Australia, is the co-founder of Boost Mobile, the leading lifestyle-based mobile network in the U.S. with multi-billion dollars in revenue, served as the managing director and head of venture capital at Save & Ventures, which is a leading early-stage venture capital investment firm and a founding partner in the SoftBank Capital Technology Fund. Together, his venture capital funds have raised over $800 and were early investors in many leading digital media companies, including The Huffington Post and BuzzFeed. He's currently the CEO of Cooperative Health, a digital media company focused on men's health, as well as the author of the HarperCollins book, Your New Prime, 30 Days to Better Sex, Eternal Strength, and a Kick-Ass Life After 40, through this, he's created a comprehensive guide to healthy aging for men, highlighting the specific things to focus on, flexibility, mobility, balance, functional strength, nutrition, and endurance, not to mention leading a kick-ass life. And as if that weren't enough, Craig is also the host on CNBC's new Shark Tank-style show, The Adventure Capitalists, showcasing the best new innovation from outdoor startups across the world. Uh, And honestly, Craig, I don't know how we're going to fit your story into just 30 (laughs) minutes on this podcast. That's amazing and an incredible. I'm exhausting.
2: I'm exhausted listening to that. Right.
1: Well, I know that you have some amazing uh, stories in in store for everyone uh, listening today, and it's a huge honor to have you on the show. I'm, I'm really a huge fan of your work, and I can't wait to hear more about your story. But before we talk about the present day, let's jump back in time a bit. Tell us a little bit more about. Craig Cooper, as a child growing up in New Zealand, and how you fell in love with the outdoors to begin with.
2: Well, um, you know, I'm 53 years old now, and I was I was born in New Zealand, but I left when I was 14. But those sort of 14 years in New Zealand were extremely formative because. I mean, New Zealand is sort of an action sports paradise. And, you know, I I know I was only, you know, a young grommet at the time, but I kind of had a sort of birth by fire because of the environment that I was brought up in, whether that was through sort of, you know, the rugged surf environment that we have down there um, and sort of, you know, everything that the outdoors sort of had to offer because, you know, you had to make your own fun in New Zealand. And, you know, that fun was basically... You know, being outside and, you know, making things, playing with things, you know, you know uh, and, you know, causing trouble and, uh, you know, having as much fun as you could. Um, and so I grew up surfing. I started surfing when I was sort of six or seven years old. And I was in the New Zealand surf team. And um, eventually when I left um, New Zealand, I literally left school when I was 14 and moved to Australia to go surfing, living on the Gold Coast with a bunch of Kiwis and um, – uh, you know, living that lifestyle on the Gold Coast of Australia. But, you know, New Zealand was, you know, it was a hard place to grow up in because it's, you know, it's uh, its a very rugged country. The weather is very extreme, uh, you know, from winter to summer. Um, the travel, the surf culture is built around travel because... You know you have to travel in New Zealand to get waves. Um, and you can get from one coast to the other. Mo- most people don't know this. You can get from the you know east coast to the west coast in about an hour and a half. So you know you've got your choice of coasts as to you know whether the you know wind is offshore or not, and where the swell's coming from, from the you know which which um, uh, which ocean it's coming from. So um, you know, my parents got divorced when I was very young when I was nine, so I was kind of out on the street. I was a skateboarder, um, and I skated professionally in New Zealand. I was sponsored. You know, when I was um, 11 years old through to um, sort of when I was 14 when I left New Zealand, I used to tour the country, you know, as a 13 year old with a bunch of, you know, older skaters uh, with a half pipe and giving demonstrations at, you know, Easter shows and other, you know, public events. Um, so I was kind of on the street for most of my, um, you know, years that I can remember when I was younger because, you know, my parents were pretty absent and I was, you know, either skating or surfing and, um, you know, out there and, trying to avoid all, you know, as much trouble as I could. Well, I don't know, maybe that's the wrong thing. I probably had too much trouble. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a perfect amount, but it sounds like skating and surfing were a huge part of your life growing up. How did those things influence what you thought you wanted to do?
2: Um, you know, I was like a nomadic grommet and I had sort of really no um, influence or mentors or aspirations at that time. And it was... Um, you know, really not until I moved to the Gold Coast of Australia um, that I started to sort of get serious about my future. Because um, you know, I moved when I was fourteen, and sort of for seven years up until I was um, you know twenty-one, um, you know, I continued to live that lifestyle. But I had the fortune of kind of being adopted by some pretty successful sort of Gold Coast entrepreneurs, who, because I was a great tennis player. Um, I, you know, ended up playing tennis with these guys a lot and hanging out with them. And I was, you know, 15, 16, and they were in their early thirties. And these are, you know, lawyers and entrepreneurs and property developers. And they kind of counseled me around, you know, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And that resulted in me pretty much packing up my car, my HR Holden at the time, my 1963 HR Holden with my girlfriend at the time, my now wife of, you know, 29 years, Maria, and us heading to Sydney, and me uh, basically going back to school when I was twenty-one. So I did my final two years of high school when I was twenty-one as an adult student, and eventually, um, I ultimately got into um, a double degree program in the University of Sydney. I studied economics for three years, then I studied law for four and a half, and you know practiced law for six, seven years after that. Um, so um, you know I was lucky that I. Um, I could have gone a completely different direction if I had not had sort of mentorship that, you know, I had, you know, in those early days in Queensland on the Gold Coast.
1: Absolutely. It it seems like that mentorship was a, a very big turning point in your life. Um, did that mainly simply evolve from, uh, your connection with them through tennis and, and how impactful was that mentorship, uh, throughout the rest of your life?
2: I think, um, I think for me, through my whole life, um, the the, um, sort of active lifestyle that I lead and everything that surrounds that has really influenced everything that I've kind of done. And where I've ended up, um, you know, both in my early days from New Zealand to Australia and, you know, ultimately then coming to the U.S. and becoming a U.S. citizen um, after being here for 16 years. um, I became a citizen last year and my kids actually became citizens yesterday. Um, which is awesome. That's awesome. Um, but everything that I've really done has surrounded, um, you know, some form of adventure um, and lifestyle component. I mean, even to this day, pretty much everything, and we can talk about this, you know, more in you know detail when we get to it. But you know, my life has really been framed around my lifestyle, and everything that I've done from a, um, a career and you know business perspective has been you know one hundred percent lifestyle first and. You know, really, in the early days, it was all about getting enough money so I could travel. You know, I I was never about, you know, getting, you know, you know, becoming a lawyer or becoming a, you know, energy property development, which I did for six and a half years when I was developing uh, coal and gas-fired power stations up in Indonesia. You know, all that so I could surf Indonesia. You know, all that was lifestyle-based. Everything that I've done from a financial perspective has been directed towards giving me more freedom in life. That's been my 100% directive. And whether that means financial freedom um, or from a lifestyle perspective, to me, that's that's the most important thing in life.
1: I absolutely agree. I think we're very similar in that. Um, And this is actually a question that I – a lot of people um bring up with me, but you've obviously had a lot of success in business um and and most of that has come from pursuing that type of lifestyle. Uh, but do you see a correlation between an adventurous lifestyle and business success um, that's common even outside of your own experience?
2: I think uh, I mean, I've always gravitated towards business relationships that have been founded in friendship and friendship to me normally is founded in shared passions. So those passions have always been, um, you know, around sport, travel, lifestyle, whatever that might be. Um, you know, I, I, um, consistently develop my business relationships off the back of my friendships and, uh, my closest friends are, you know, the people that I, you know, have, you know, very strong shared experiences with. And most of that is either in the mountains the water, Um, you know, or you know, in the parks or whatever it might be, so it's 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 fundamental to me, Moshe.
1: I absolutely agree, and that's one of the aspects that I really like about what you're doing with the adventure capitalists. Given that those relationships, um, and and experiences are grounded in actual. Group outdoor expen- uh, experience, which I'm really excited to get into that a little bit more in a little bit. But before we jump into that, uh, tell us a little bit more about how you made the transition from going to law school and practicing as a lawyer uh, into business. What made that um, uh, that transition and that decision for you? Um, you know, I'm uh, I, I think I'm
2: fortunate that I've had 20 careers. Um, uh, I know a lot of people that have had one, and if anyone's read Who Moved My Cheese, which everyone should, you should advice. always you should always be prepared for you know what's coming, whether it's a black swan economic or social event or whatever that might be. Um, you know th- today's world is you know not the world of you know 10 or 15 years ago. There are no safety nets, so I have I have always consistently led my life on the basis of what's the next thing, no matter how comfortable I am in the current thing. It's always been about what's what's the next thing. And I I mean, it's been a blessing and a curse because, you know, it's partly resulted in me always having sort of, you know, one foot in another camp and not both be firmly planted in the camp of now. But I think it's been beneficial to me from, you know, long term perspective because I'm continually educating and continually looking for, you know, what's, what's the next opportunity. And I, when I look back and, you know, I don't look back on it unless I'm sort of asked and I have to sort of, you know. Um, um, uh, you know, be cognizant of it. But when I do look back, you know, right back into it, you know, when I was, uh, you know, peeling potatoes to washing dishes to, you know, being a head chef in a Gold Coast restaurant, to, you know, waitering to whatever it might be to getting back to law school and, um, you know, practicing law, then I started an energy company. Um, and then I got very deep into uh, mobile and wireless communications, which led to um, you know, bringing Boost Mobile here to the United States with Peter Adderton in 2001. Um, and, you know, subsequently leveraging that into, you know, multiple venture capital funds and, you know, various other, you know, investment opportunities. But I think everything, everything has a progression, right? You've just got to be prepared to accept that pr- progression. And as long as you've got the passion, you know, for what you're doing and, you know, where you want to end up, I think opportunities come to you. And, you know, they're not the opportunities that you wish for, you know, a lot of the time. But um, uh, if you've got a single path and you've got a North Star and you, you know, have a foundation platform around that's how you want to live your life, then ultimately things, you know, will coalesce around that in some form or another. And it's not always what you want and it's not always, you know, what you expect. I mean, the stuff that, you know, keeps you up at night generally never happens. It's the stuff that comes from left field that, you know is, you know, going to hit you, you know, from the side. It's the stuff that you never think about. I mean, we're in this culture that we worry about so many things happening to us, you know, whether it's, you know, financial or social relationship or from a health perspective, you know, and, you know, anxiety around worry creates its own effect. So I think you just have to live your life, you know, with a passionate direction around, you know, a singular focus around stuff, you know, that you love doing. And, you know, hopefully things will be good for you. And that's not always the case, but, you know, we can only ultimately live, you know, in the present because, you know, it's tried to say, but we we just don't know what's going to happen. You know, we can't plan. We can't, you know, give ourselves, you know, a definitive track in terms of, you know, what our life's going to look like. I mean, I had a friend yesterday say, hey, do you want to come with me to this economic forecasting conference today? I said, what are they going to tell me? You know, it's like, what are they going to forecast? Who can forecast anything? It's just, you know. It's just not the world we live in.
1: That's true. It's so important to have that mindset because you never really know what's going to happen. And especially looking at your own life, um, things uh, adverse events have, have happened so often that you've been able to push through. For instance, you were struck by a lightning playing golf at 27, was in a coma for a month at nine years old, nearly had a leg amputated at 11, and serious heart disease that nearly killed you at 18, countless car crashes and other physical hazards. <laughs> um, how have those experiences helped to create this mindset that you've been talking about?
2: That, that they've hundred percent guided me in, um, you know, in terms of where I am today. I mean, my whole people ask, you know, how long have you been training? I've been training my whole life and it's, you know, not about vanity. It's about sanity and keeping myself in peak, um, uh, you know, mental, physical, emotional, and, you know, sexual health. And, you know, so much of that was guided by, you know, all those, um, you know, health you know, I won't say concerns. you know, it's like there were big health issues when I had when I was young. And most of them are inflammation based, encephalitis, osteomyelitis, pericarditis. you know these are all inflammation based disorders, and we live we live in a very inflamed society. So sort of my my passion around men's health and particularly forty plus men's health um, is, you know one, it's a selfish endeavor um because I want to keep myself in peak, you know performance. And that's just not physical performance. That's everything that matters once you're, you know, 40 and, you know, above sexually, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationship health, and the like. But it's also, um, you know, I feel that there's just no voice for guys my age who, you know, are struggling, who are struggling with, you know, this traditional midlife crisis and they're seeing um, their lives as over and, you know, they're complacent about everything. that surrounds them, their career, their, their partnerships, their physical state. And my message is that, you know, it's a time of, you know, opportunity, not one of complacency that particularly when you're 40, you know, you've got, you know, it's a time to look forward and go, what do I really want to be going forward? How do I want to live my life? And is this where I really want to, um, you know, is this how, you know, I want to be in sort of 10 or 15 years time? And for me, that's about getting stronger, you know, every day and sort of all aspects of, you know, what I'm trying to achieve. Um, And if you look back, yes, you know, to your original question, I've, uh, um, you know, I've been heavily influenced by my own sickness, but I think it's, um, you know, I think I've been fortunate that, you know, I've come through it all and I'm able to sort of, you know, give a message out to other men.
1: You've done so many amazing things to help share that mentality and to help promote men's health was... Was there a particular um, inspiring event that helped you to get started and go down that path of wanting to wanting to share and inspire others um, to know more about men's health
2: I think um you know i have I've always been driven to it internally as a selfish endeavor, but what has sort of activated my uh, sort of more public profile around it was um was a couple of things. Um, when I was forty, I had a PSA test, which is a prostate specific antigen test, which basically came back and said, within you know ten years, I had a you know forty to fifty percent chance of getting prostate cancer. So um, I became very deeply involved in um, in sort of the movement around uh, men's um, cancer, men's sexual health, um, and particularly related to men's prostate cancer. And I don't have prostate cancer. Um, but I live my life every day. Like, um, I'm in a preventative environment around it because, you know, once you get a disease, as you know, you know, um, you know, it's a massive life, obviously it's a massive life changer. So I never wanted to be that guy that woke up one day and, you know, found out I had had cancer without, you know, and, you know, had done nothing about it. So, you know, once I started looking into the sector more and more and started researching you know, all the treatment options, preventative wellness, um, and the whole structural and institutional environment around the medical system in the U.S. I became, I became, you know, deeply, deeply upset and concerned about what men my age were being exposed to, particularly from the point of view of the treatment paradigm around prostate cancer, which affects, um, you know, 30,000 men a year in the U S 225,000, uh, men, um, are living with, uh, sorry, thirty thousand plus men are dying every year. About 230, 250,000 new diagnoses every year, and it's a it's a massive, massive disease for a forty plus man to cope with emotionally, sexually, uh, you know, physically. It's basically a life changer. So to me, that was what sort of drove me down my public path because I realised that there wasn't there wasn't a voice around um, wellness for men, particularly directed at you know, serious sort of modern day chronic health disorders.
1: Absolutely. It seems like the, the treatment that is there right now has a lot of, of holes and is lacking a lot um, that you can really contribute to. What are some of the things that you suggest uh, that you found through your research and your lifestyle that have been able to really help from a preventative standpoint? Well, um, I, th- I think the fundamental
2: platform is not so specifically d- disease-related because I could talk about preventing prostate cancer for hours. But from the point of view of managing, you know, inf- inflammation, um, optimizing sexual, you know, physical, mental health, um, um, there are some uh, sort of fundamental approaches around uh, that which. Um, short plug, I detail in my book, (laughs) your new prime, (laughs) Um, uh,
1: we'll link that in the show notes too for everyone listening who wants to, (laughs) but,
2: um, but I think, um, the issue here, Marshall is that the problem with the U S, um, system in particular is that medical advice is doled out whether you're um on the same basis whether you're 8 or 80 right whether you're a man or a woman so the same rda requirements around vitamin d for example are given out to you know uh, from a 12 year old to a you know you know 120 year old you know um the same as in respect of your fat carbohydrate protein intakes same as whether you're a female or a male and you know we're a very specific group we're a 40 plus group of men who have very specific requirements around um, you know our health and all the aspects that sort of you know drive that health, and so we can't be treated as sort of a mass group like you know the U.S. medical system and the and the and also the the nutrition nutritional and preventative wellness system treats us. So what I've tried to give out in my book is the specific foundations around you know what really matters from a nutritional um, sort of exercise, mental health, um, and promoting better sexual health for 40 plus guys. I'm taking a very specific demographic and, you know, I've spent 15 years researching with an advisory board of, you know, 30 plus medical, um, uh, psychological preventative advisors and put together what I think is the most comprehensive guys for 40, comprehensive guide for 40 plus men in order to be their you know, peak health. And by health, it just doesn't mean, you know, biceps and abs, you know, I don't give a crap about you know your 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 body fat. I care about um you know your emotional, sexual, physical health. I care about, you know, whether you can, you know, pick the groceries up out of the car without um you know jacking your back compared to whether you can, you know, um, you know, bench press three hundred pounds. I mean none of that matters when you get to my age.
1: Exactly. Very functional um types of of applications to that. And you've done such a great job of inspiring people to live healthier lifestyles, um, mainly through outdoor fitness. And now you're even taking that one step further with helping outdoor entrepreneurs to create new innovative products that will ideally hope to help more people get outside and live a more active, healthy lifestyle. Tell us more about the inspiration for the Adventure Capitalists and how that got started.
2: Um, it was, uh, it was produced by three ball in, um, Manhattan beach here in Southern California. And they are the producers of, you know, the biggest loser and, you know, top chef and a whole bunch of, you know, non-scripted reality programs. And so if uh, your listeners who don't know adventure capitalists, we were the number one new show on CNBC last year, which is awesome. Uh, we're about to start, finish, uh, filming series two in about, um, three to four weeks. So as, Marshall said at the beginning of the program, "We're like Shark Tank for the outdoors. We we are looking for the next, you know, great, um, inspirational sort of outdoor products, um, which we can, you know, showcase on the show, and you know, like Shark Tank, as a group with my co-hosts, uh, decide whether we, you know, want to invest in or not, and support and, um, you know, strategically help those companies and businesses through to, um, you know, becoming multi-hundred million dollar businesses." Uh, So it's me and two other guys, Jeremy Bloom, who was, you know, uh, you know, six times World Cup ski champion, um, six year NFL player um, and the head and CEO of uh, Integrate Software, Um, you know, a uh, significant software business, which has raised over 50 million dollars in venture capital. And uh, Dahani Jones, who was the 12 year NFL player who runs Key Capital. And so we're um, and we have also guest hosts coming on this year. We have some, you know, super exciting celebrity guest hosts coming on. Um, So, we're three guys in the wild um, trying to find, you know, the next, you know, great thing in outdoor sports. And unlike Shark Tank, we're not, you know, five people sitting in a boardroom. Everything we do is in a location for, um, is in a location that was um, developed for the product. So, you know, if we've got a shark deterrent, you know, bracelet, we'll go to the Bahamas and, you know, dive with sharks. If, We've got a, um, a new tent system that's been built for Everest for hundred mile an hour winds will go up to, you know, the top of Yosemite and test that. So every show is in a different environment. So it's, it's part travel, part of, you know, venture and part investment. But the, the best thing about the show Marshall is that really it's, you know, the, the hosts who are, you know, kind of three alpha males, you know, trying to have as much fun as possible. And, you know, uh, aside from the investment side of the business, we're really um, most of the shows about the three of us competing athletically because you know we're always in some you know adventure environment around you know mountain biking or this year we'll be skiing a lot and um, you know doing some you know crazy mountain adventures. So, you know, and I'm the oldest. A- I'm the oldest of them all. I'm 53 and they're all in their 30s. So I'm like, you know, I've got a mission to take them out.
1: <laughs> well, they probably still can't keep up with you. So uh, it it seems like a they're blast. They're badass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It seems like a really fun show to be a part of. What's one of your favorite experiences uh, or favorite memories from from season one of, of what you did?
2: Um, we had a really cool bike uh, technology we took out to the Mojave Desert called the Rungu, R-U-N-G-U, R-U-N-G-U, which is like an off-road electric bike. That was a lot of fun. Um, we went to um, the Bahamas, to the Bimini Islands to test a shark stopper um which was a uh, shark deterrent device which has been developed both for recreational use as well as for um uh for the commercial fishing industry i hope it worked uh, well <laughs> yeah well you'd have to watch the show it was Great. a lot of fun <laughs> no
1: spoilers. i'm not giving <laughs> it away i'm
2: <laughs> exactly. I, I, i'm still i'm still talking to you so it must have worked a little bit <laughs> I, but. I guess
1: it did yeah that's
2: right <laughs> <cool. laughs> and um we had, you know, ho- whole bunch of fun things. We had, you know, electric paddle boards. We had tent systems. We had new hydration devices. It's a, it's a, it's a mix. You know, it was our first season, so you know, we're still getting comfortable with the product set. But we have about 50 new products which we've just cast for the next season. Um, so it's gonna be, it's gonna be super exciting. And we don't see anything before, you know, we actually meet the entrepreneurs. So, so literally, we'll see uh, the products, you know, at the same time as, you know. Um, you know, the audiences are seeing them on, on television.
1: That's fantastic. I love the idea and the concept. I've seen a few episodes myself and it, it just looks like a blast. Uh, I think it's an amazing idea and you've had the chance to work with so many incredible entrepreneurs that are building really innovative things through, through the show and through that opportunity. Uh, What advice would you give to entrepreneurs out there? Maybe some who are listening today who want to build their own outdoor company?
2: I would, look, it's not an easy space because there's a lot of consumer goods. Um, look, having said that, uh, let me step back a bit. I mean, the outdoor, the outdoor recreation economy, and uh, in its broader sense, I read a statistic a couple of days ago that it's you know bigger than um, you know the pharmaceutical industry. So it's a massive multi-billion-dollar industry. Um, so there's, from a market perspective, um, on a macro level, it's a it's a it's a huge market, uh, but having said that, I mean there's obviously so many segments around the outdoor you know industry and you know it's very consumer product based. So I think if there's anything that you know one of the takeaways from the show in the last season is that we saw a lot of consumer products but not uh, many actual you know businesses that were investable businesses that you could actually create. You know, multi-hundred million dollar businesses out of a lot of very cool stuff, Marshall. That I you would love to buy, but when I look at them as you know, from a business perspective and from a venture capital perspective, you know, either the market's too small, or, um, um, or uh, you know, the management hasn't thought through the business enough, um, or it's a very you know niche product, or you know, there there are many aspects when reviewing you know business from a due diligence perspective as a venture capitalist that. The outdoor industry is a is a different animal. I've been used in the past to investing in, you know, digital media technology um, and, you know, internet um, consumer, direct-to-consumer businesses. And it's easy to build a business model around that. Uh, a lot of stuff that we're seeing and we saw in the first season uh, was difficult to build an investment thesis around. Um, so uh, f- firstly, I would say, you know, obviously, you know, know your market. Um, and if it's an existing market that already has uh, existing competitors in it, you can't just be a little bit better. You've got to be exponentially and fundamentally better than uh, the leading competitors because you just it's just too hard to you know, become another stock company or another um, you know, performance apparel company or you know, another GoPro, you know, of which there's 50. So uh, when you're really looking at the opportunity, you're either, you're adding, you're either creating a new market segment – or if you're going into a existing market market segment, you've got to be exponentially greater and different, differentiated from a product perspective than the competitors you're going up against because you just can't be a little bit better because the market is so hard to penetrate. I mean look at the outdoor retailer show which was just a couple of weeks ago. and right, it was in, just uh, there actually yeah, I mean, you're walking around the floor, as you know, Marshall, it's just like, you know, it's kind of
1: dominated by the big companies for sure. Yeah.
2: Right. And if you're, if you've managed to sneak in a little 10 by 10 booth there, then, you know, REI and everyone's just, you know, walking past you. I mean, it's just, it's just a really hard market to get into unless, unless, unless you're creating a new market segment and that's, that's not easy. But having said that, I I don't want to dampen anyone's passion because, um, you know, I'm not the, you know, forebearer of wisdom around what works and what, you know, what doesn't. And, you know, having said that, you know, I look at every single thing that comes across my table. Um, you know, what's sent to me or, you know, what's emailed to me, uh, because, you know, you never know what you're going to miss. Um, but I'll just say, if you're passionate about it, that's one thing, but, you know, temper the passion with whether it's a hobby or whether it's a business, because, you know, there's a, a lot of people go into the sectors because, um, you know, it's a hobby that they think they can make a business out of. And, you know, most of them end up getting divorced or becoming bankrupt. But, um, so, you know, find out whether it's really a business opportunity or something that's, you know, ultimately just going to be a hobby for you.
1: Exactly. That's so true. And through all the different things you've seen, what do you think is an example of a company that, that really took that advice to heart and did a great job with coming up with something that was not only innovative and new, but, um, was very strategic in their business plan of how they were to make that into a a multi hundred dollar, hundred million dollar company.
2: Well, I'll take two examples from um, from what I just talked about. One is a company creating a new market segment. Obviously, GoPro just you know jumps out um, of that. Um, two, in terms of companies that have you know is entered into existing uh, markets and been truly differentiated, I think when you look around at companies like Yeti. Um, which, you know, went into the, uh, you know, storage and, um, you know, hydration market with very high-end products around, um, you know, hydration and, uh, you know, camping and the like. I think they've done a great job. They've created a whole new market segment now of, you know, very high-end performance equipment and whether that's some of the new clothing brands which are coming out. I mean, I think it's created a a market in two things. One, you know, high-end and, you know, two from a branding perspective, what they did. Um, I work very closely with Outer Known, which is Kelly Slater and John Moore's company, which are creating, you know, very cool, um, you know, performance and lifestyle apparel, but, but with a very environmental and social consciousness. So I love Outer Known, uh, what they're doing from a performance apparel perspective. Um, other brands that I'm wearing, like clothing, just jumps out there, right? But I think when you're looking at the clothing market, uh, Roan, which does a lot of active performance wear have, you know, really differentiated themselves on a brand perspective. The other company is Viori, uh, V-U-O-R-I, I think it's spelt, which is doing similar things in yoga wear. And these are big established, you know, markets with multiple entrants. But I think from a brand perspective, those guys have been super slick in terms of what they've done. Um, you know, branding is the hardest thing of all, um, and you know, everyone struggles with it. And everyone, you know, today to survive, you've got to be a direct to consumer company and accessing the um, all the different branding platforms and acquisition platforms is, you know, is the hardest thing that any business has to come up against today. You know, whether it's from developing influences and developing, you know, a you know authentic, you know, core brand, which is, you know, the foundation of sort of success with any millennial brand today. I mean, that's the hardest thing of any business. And, you know, no one's an expert. Everyone has to just keep testing, testing, testing because there's no playbook around it. And if you can make it work and you can, uh, you know, nail it, and, you know, then I think, you know, you're, you're more than halfway there.
1: Absolutely. And I think it really goes back to that mindset you were sharing with us earlier of taking the challenges and the struggles and the hurdles as they come with or as they come to you and and overcoming those in, in positive ways. Um, and it's been really inspirational to hear all the advice you've given us, um, both through your own personal experiences and and through what you've done. Um, but if we could close with with one thing, I'd love to ask, um, what would you like your legacy to be of all the things you've done and and all the uh, advice, inspiration you've give, given, what would be one thing you would uh, want to be remembered for, uh, that one legacy that you'd like to live leave? I
2: think, um, you know, a lot of people tell me that they're eating sardines because of me, by the way, Marshall, because, you know, I'm always talking about my sardine fetish. You know, before I came on this podcast, I was having a can of sardines because um, I think that they're their ultimate superfood for men. But anyway, really? I don't I'm know ch- if I've ever tried sardines yeah.
1: before. I got to try them yeah
2: you can search Craig Cooper sardines and there's oh, yeah. hundred, hundred posts. Um, but I, I joke because I have a lot of guys emailing me saying, you know, I'm eating sardines because of you. Um, <laughs> that's funny. but that's, that's not my legacy. I think as a father, I want to be a, a, you know, leg, my, my most, you know, prized legacy is that, you know, dad and, you know, and, um, um, partner to, you know, my 29 year wife. But outside of that, from a broader perspective, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely driven to make an impact on um, men's health, um, particularly the demographic around, um, you know, my age, you know, 40 plus men's health who basically have very little information out there uh, uh, around, you know, surviving a very tough, um, you know, world, you know, emotionally, you know, from a career perspective and from a health perspective. And, if I can, you know, I've you know got a very good friend, Tony Robbins, who, you know, I've spent a lot of time with, you know, personally. And, you know, one once I was flying with him on his jet and we, you know, we're talking about a bunch of things and, you know, I asked him about his, you know, week-long events and, you know, everything from Unleash the Power Within to, you know, Date with Destiny. And, you know, my question to Tony was, you know, you have such an immersive five-day event that there is – you know, so much information parted, you know, uh, imparted in that event. And, you know, what do you consider a success when coming out of that event? And Tony's, Tony's reply was that, you know, I get it. There's a lot of information, but if someone just takes one thing out of five days and consistently implements that over the course of their lifetime and, um, you know, actively implements it, then, then to Tony, that was a success. And, you know, I've, I've pretty much consistently lived by that in terms of what I'm trying to impart on men, because if I can give someone just one thing that makes an impact on a consistent basis that leads to a massive lifestyle change that makes that person perform better, then to me, that's just freaking awesome. And, you know, the, the, the emails and the communications I have with people who are reading my book and who have actually taken the first step around small changes, then, uh uh you know to me that you know makes my day and just makes it all worthwhile because you know that's that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying i'm not trying to make people make big massive changes around their life but i'm trying to tell them that you, there is a life of you know more passion of you know of better health whatever that means to them going forward and not get caught up in the fact that you know they're 40 or they're 50 and this is what their life's going to be for the rest of their life if i can have someone change one small thing then to me, that's a success, Marshall.
1: Absolutely. Well, you've done an amazing job of uh, showcasing that mission and sharing that mentality through your book and through everything that you've done so far. And thanks so much for joining us on the show. I know a lot of people are really inspired by what you've done and can't wait to check out the rest of the things that you're working on right now. And just to mention again, we're going to link your book to uh the show notes of this episode so anyone listening today who is interested in learning more definitely go on and check that out thanks so much for coming on today with us craig it's been such a pleasure and i can't wait to follow the exciting adventures to come that's so awesome thanks so much marshall and keep up the passion absolutely well it's through people like you and trying to uh to emulate a lot of the amazing things that our guests have done that really inspire us so thanks so much for joining us today
0: You too, buddy. This podcast is brought to you by Vestigo, a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences. People have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides. Recently, we talked to Tyler, a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo, and then naturally, I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, maybe someday in the future. Uh, of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I, I can get around to that vestigo allowed it to be like let's do it you want to do it here's when here's where you know let's go what would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip go just go now it's uh, it's you, you just can't beat it you can't do it yourself it's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves but maybe don't i mean and 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 they can but it's just there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity like having the group of people makes it just makes it. And uh so so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time, that maybe I know them, maybe I don't. We can kind of share our, you know, nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um you know, it's it just all around I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure-sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to rappel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co. b e s t i g o dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code PODCAST and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.